I'm Robin D.G. Kelly. And this is Errol Garner Uncovered. Who is Errol Garner to you? The rhythm, the beat, the feeling. He was an emotional player. Right. Endless ideas, endless feeling, endless groove, endless rhythm. He was a big band. He would play horn lines, melody lines, and when you listen to those lines, you finally realize, if you're listening carefully, he's playing shapes and colors. And that, I believe, is kind of the the, the pretext for avant-garde music. Hi, I'm Pete Lockhart, senior producer for Octave Music. Welcome to the first episode of our 12-part series exploring the music and legacy of Errol Garner. Each episode features an in-depth conversation about one of Garner's albums between our host, Dr. Robin D.G. Kelly, and one of today's most important voices in jazz. On this episode, Robin sits down with pianist Eric Reed to discuss the first album Errol released after his split with Columbia Records, 1959's Dream Street. I'm here with the great, the incomparable Eric Reed, probably the most prolific and versatile pianist, composers on the scene right now from Philadelphia, grew up here in LA. He was just 20 years old when he was pianist for Wynton Marsalis's Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra. He's recorded many CDs as a leader, as a sideman, too many to name here. Uh, he's dedicated his music to his own original compositions as well as artists like Thelonious Monk, uh, Elmo Hope, certainly Errol Garner, uh, and others. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Kelly. Thank you for having me. Oh, oh, thank you. It's such an, such an honor. Let's begin with Errol Garner. There are um, quite a few common denominators, of course. Errol and I are both Geminis, both from the state of Pennsylvania. Art Blakey, also mm-hmm. from Pennsylvania, from Pittsburgh specifically, mm-hmm. used to tell me every time I'd see him, you know, he, when he'd come to town in Los Angeles and he'd play Catalina Bar and Grill or Birdland West in Long Beach, he'd look at me and he'd say, oh, Errol Garner. He'd look at me and he'd, you know, wow. said I reminded him of Errol Garner. Wow. And then another time he'd come to town, he'd say, oh, Bud Powell, Bud Powell, hey Earl, hey Bud. You know, either one, you never, never know which one it was going to be. Right. And my eyes would just light up. Because, first of all, the fact that I Blake even acknowledged me. Mm-hmm. I don't think he actually knew my name. <laughs> I think he would just call me Errol or Bud. <laughs> and I wouldn't be surprised or even offended. That's high praise. That's what I'm mm-hmm. saying. That, that he would look at me in some kind of way, my face or my stature or whatever, would resonate with him in such a way that he would say, two of the most iconic musicians in music. Mm-hmm. first heard Dream Street and what, what what impact did that record have on you? 1982. 
I was going to what is now the Colburn School. Back then it was called the Community School of Performing Arts. Mm -hmm. And there was a dance teacher there by the name of Alfred Desio. And he was teaching tap. He also taught ballet. And he always had Errol Garner playing. He had the 78 machine on a, 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 a bookshelf on a separate part of the room hooked up to loudspeakers. And then they had the dance floor. Uh, so it wouldn't make the record skip when, you know, you were dancing. So it was on a different, different part of the floor. And he always had Arrow Garner playing. Always, always, always. And I was like, man, what's what's going on here? And this cat, he just he he would just be dancing like he was in dreamland, hmm. all by himself. He just had this love and this passion for Errol Garner. So it made me get more into the groove and the rhythm a certain kind of way, because that's really what Errol was about. He was right. about that rhythm. I mean, it just it had, it had to feel a certain kind of way. And sometimes the tempos would, would you know, decrease. Oftentimes they would, <laughs> because, you know, he's, he's, he could play behind the beat and on top of the beat at the same time. He was playing against himself, mm -hmm. you know. He had that left hand going, sort of like the guitar strum, but then the right hand would be playing behind that. So, man, to be a drummer or a bassist in that ensemble, that's no right. easy feat. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, so I would say 82, 81, 82, when I first became aware of, um, of Dream Street. Right, right. And what's interesting about it is that Earl was a Columbia recording artist. Huge. Huge. Concert by the Sea was, is, the, is the, the LP that really, you know, cemented his contract with Columbia, mm -hmm. thanks to Martha Glazer, mm -hmm. who was his manager at the time, and he made a series of records with Columbia. And Columbia, as a label, I mean, this is Miles Davis's label. This right. is Duke Ellington's label. Dave Brubeck. Dave Brubeck's yeah. label. Um, it was the label yeah. for jazz and yeah. for much music. And so he and Martha Glazer are very upset because Columbia decides to release... Earlier Some works. Earlier. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Works that that were basically outtakes. Right. Garner was very upset about that, sent a, a, a telegram to John Hammond, who was the, you know, Columbia's a and &R, &R person. Yeah. In that telegram, he says, you know, basically, you're trying to sandbag me because I'm a Negro artist. You know, <laughs> what, what's, what's the deal here? You right. can't release work that I deem inferior, right. you know, because it's not only a slight against me, mm -hmm. but against all artists on the label. Mm -hmm. So this was a very bold move for him both to sue and to win. He won that lawsuit. He sure did. You know, which is huge. That's very huge. You know, and that's the good news. Yeah. Um, the, it's not really the bad news, but <laughs> what that meant was that he was then adrift. Yes. Uh, and had to develop, he and Martha had to develop their own thing, and that's where Octave mm -hmm. Records comes in. He had a champion in Martha Glazer. Martha only had one client. Yeah. <laughs> that was Earl. Yeah. And devoted so much of her time and energy to him and to making sure that he could play the music he wants to play on yes. his terms. Yes. And so Dream Street is the first yes. of this series yes. uh, and very special in that sense. So that's the background. And you know, I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about the record. Are there any particular cuts 
you are fond of? Is there anything about that record that you feel like, okay, well, this is something I've been thinking about, you know? Blue Lou mm-hmm. has always been one of my favorite compositions anyway. It's, it's an unusual tune because it starts on an odd choice of interval or mm-hmm. chord. So if we're in the key of A flat, you know, it starts on E7. Mm-hmm. Uh, da, so, whoa, whoa, that's, what, what tune is this? Where are they going? It's sort of deceptive. Right. It's not a terribly complex composition, right. but I just like the way it's structured. So Teddy Wilson said of Earl, he's one of the greatest talents there was. His harmonies were as modern as tomorrow and his conception of jazz exquisite. Ama Jamal said, anyone that has not been influenced by Earl has not been in our field. Uh, in fact, it was Ahmad Jamal who compared him with Ravel and Debussy. Okay. Um, and George Shearing, who basically wouldn't have a style without Earl Garner. We know that. <laughs> right. Um, and he admitted, you know, he copped his title. Nobody else can play the way Earl did. And, you know, it still surprises me that he's not even more famous than he is. I mean, people throw his name out, but it's sort of like, it's like the Roots. At one point, you know, everyone said, we love the Roots. Well, name one song. Right, right. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a very good point. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we, we have a really bad habit as people in the art world of putting things into these nice little vials, these little capsules, Mm -hmm. and these lists and these categories. And we worship and adore and idolize people like Miles Davis and John Coltrane because of the part that they played in the changing of music. And Errol Garner, I think, largely gets overlooked because... And this is something crucial that I'm taking a page from from, from Errol's book. Mm. Errol Garner did not make records or play for musicians and critics. Right. And that's right. important. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. They don't buy records, first of all. <laughs> 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 so let's just start there. Uh, and yes, I meant that with a whole bunch of shade. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, er- Errol Garner, he was... He was just so in tune with himself. Mm-hmm. He was in tune with the world. And it was this reciprocal thing. They gave back just as much as he put out. And he would keep going. He was right. like the Energizer Bunny. Like, man, this, this guy is just endless. Endless energy. Endless ideas. Endless feeling. Endless groove. Endless rhythm. And he was, what's the word? Relentless. Right. And you, ha- you have to be. You have to be singular. You have to be unapologetic about what you do. You have to be confident in what you do. Right. And you have to be relentless. Monk even said, he says, you know what? Don't change what you're doing for the audience. Mm-hmm. Even if it takes you 15 years for people to catch up, you keep doing what you're doing. Now, of course, there are sacrifices to pay for being that singular, for being that committed. 
for having that kind of integrity. Errol Garner, I think he was he was extremely fortunate. Obviously, he was gifted. Don't get me wrong. Right. And he put the work and he paid the dues. All these things. The moon and the stars were aligned a certain kind of way. Right. And then when Concerts by the Sea hit, hey, there was a nice little payoff. Exactly. And early on. Sweet Lorraine. The introduction to Sweet Lorraine. Errol was so famous for these introductions that seemed to have no particular bearing. Where is he going? Exactly. But (laughs) I love, I love that verse, Sweet Lorraine. The other thing is, no matter how ornate Errol is, he's always hip. And when he comes out with that very kind of monkish kind of introduction, and then just softly into Sweet Lorraine, just like it's hip. He's playing his emotions. Mm -hmm. That's honestly what I believe. I believe Errol Garner was thoroughly and always and consistently in tune with himself and with the emotions. Garner, I believe, was probably the catalyst, if you will, for free playing. When you listen to his lines, Errol Garner's musical ability and how natural and organic it was, and that it didn't come from formal training or institutionalized Mm -hmm. training or private lessons. And when you listen to those lines, he's not playing music based on theoretical parameters. He's playing totally from an emotional standpoint, totally from a feeling or a heard standpoint. So some of those notes are not going to fit so perfectly into some of the chords. He's playing shapes and colors and ideas. And that, I believe, is kind of the the, the pretext for avant-garde music, the idea of breaking away from prearranged chord changes and rhythms and things like that. And, you know, as, as a product of Pittsburgh, which produced so many great jazz musicians, so many great pianists, yes. I mean, you think about who some of his mentors were. Yeah. Billy Strayhorn, mm-hmm. Mary Lou Mary Williams. Williams yeah. I mean, Mary Lou really pushed them in a way. Um, his, his brother Linton, mm-hmm. of course, is a wonderful pianist. Yes. He paid his dues in Pittsburgh, went to New York City, and played with... You know, Lucky Thompson and Inez Cunningham and Charlie Parker, of course, made those great records, Don Bias and others. In some ways, he did have not a formal training, but like the community shaped his his playing. Absolutely. Even just go back to to the record Dream Street. Yes. Um, 
Mambo Gotham, mm -hmm. you know, where, you know, you can't live in New York and not hear Latin music. Right. The, the thing about Errol Garner, when you ask, who was Errol Garner to me? Errol Garner, he is the beat. He is the beat. He did right. not need a rhythm section. Right. But he used one, and he enjoyed having one. But the rhythm, the beat. Right, that left hand, like oh always, boom, boom. And, and, and so he was such, he was a big band because he would play horn lines, melody lines. He played the big band horn background parts, and he's playing the bass and drum part too. He would sweat through his suit. Hair was never out of place, though. <laughs> that stuff was fried, dyed, and laid to the side. But he 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 felt everything so intensely, and he played exactly the same way. That to me is that that transcends label, transcends, defies. It's beyond category. We can call him a jazz pianist, but I think we'd be doing him a disservice by calling him a jazz pianist, by, right. as opposed to just calling him a great musician, which he really was. His repertoire was extensive. And the, the sounds and the feelings that he was able to conjure up. Through uh, the Rogers and Hart tune, mm -hmm. Ladies a Tramp. He's playing it in the bass, and then he's taking it through all of these, this kind of these, these like these, these inventions, and it's almost like a, um, a, a partita. Right. It's like, dude, it's like it's like Bach, you know. And then he's just he's deconstructing the melody, and then he's turning the time around, and then he's, you know, throwing off. The, I'm like, man, what, yeah. what is going on? I said, it started. Okay, that sounds like the Ladies a Tramp, but I don't know if that's what it's going to be. Right. Right. You know, it's, no, it's, he's giving us a hint. That's true. But then that's where he went. I said, yeah. wow, this is amazing. The intros, now we obviously know that there were, when you listen to his groups, Eddie Calhoun and, and, and Kelly Martin, mm -hmm. Eddie Calhoun, uh, coincidentally, was Ahmad Jamal's bassist from 1951 to 1952. Right. Again, Pittsburgh. When you listen to the, the full pieces, when you listen to them in total, you hear, okay, this part is rehearsed, you know, like when he goes into a da 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 at the end. I think that's Liddy's a Tramp. Liddy's yeah. a Tramp, which he, I thought was hilarious. Yes. Given now, that's rehearsed because yeah. you've mm -hmm. seen him do that live in video. Okay, mm -hmm. so those, those parts are rehearsed. The, uh, the shout chorus is dun 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 
So we know, okay, the band, and I bet when, when those kinds of things happen, the band's like, okay, finally something we can you know, recognize. The mm -hmm. intros, you just never knew what was going to happen. This was Errol Garner. This right. was his thing. This is what he did. Uh, Keith Jarrett, when you listen to Keith Jarrett play those beautiful, long lullabies, it's like, what is he getting ready to play here? And, and it's just evolving and becoming more and more extended and inventive. And then finally he goes into When I Fall in Love. Right, you know, right. All of that's coming out of Errol. Yeah, yeah. Errol just setting us up with this big, huge surprise. What's happening? And, and I do it. I, I, I'm guilty. Guilty as charged. Because I oftentimes in my sets, I just segue from song to song. Mm -hmm. So instead of you know ending the song and then okay, clap, 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 next song, I just go into a little vamp. And I'll play about four or five hymns. You know, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll go into, you know, a mighty fortress is our God. I'll switch from that. And it usually stays within the same kind of genre vein, mm -hmm. you know. But like if I'm playing Yesterday's, Jerome Kern, or Yesterday uh, by the Beatles, then maybe I'll do like a little Beatles medley, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Or I might even start playing something by Journey or Toto, Michael Jackson, right. or whomever, Lionel Richie. Whatever comes and see, and that's what I, one of the things that I've gleaned from Errol Garner almost subconsciously the idea that music is music, and if you're honest, and if you just play it, mm -hmm. just let it come from within, people want to hear it. People want to hear what's going on inside, and Errol Garner knew that better than anybody. Right, right. Yeah, and, and also he knew that you had to have a strong rhythm section. <sighs> You've always had strong rhythm sections. And you think about, you know, sometimes we don't give as much credit to someone like Eddie Calhoun, who was, you know, originally from Mississippi, grew up in Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, Chicago produced so many great bass players, yeah. Wilbur Ware and others. Richard Davis. Richard Davis. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, he played with everybody. And it's interesting that for Eddie Calhoun, mm -hmm. he said Garner was his dream job. That's the job he wanted wow. for many, many years. Wow, okay. And he joined Garner in 55. Yes. And then Kelly Martin joined the year later. From South um, Carolina. Yeah, Lake exactly. City. South Carolina. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, replaced Denzel Best. Yes. You know, who's yes. another great drummer. Yes. Um, and just like uh, Calhoun kind of grew up in Chicago, Kelly Martin ends up, you know, spending a lot of time as a teenager in Detroit, mm. which also produced a lot of great drummers. And he paid his dues as well. Yes. Uh, but they all said the same thing, though, that you had to be fast yeah. and you had to think on your feet to yeah. play with Errol because you oh, never yeah. know what's going to happen next. Errol Garner's repertoire was just vast. Right. And for, forget about the pop and the jazz tunes, the classical stuff he drew from the Stravinsky and Debussy and all this impressionistic stuff. If he heard it in his head, it was coming out in his fingers and his hands were massive. Right. Huge hands for somebody who was only 5'2". And the sound, my God, the sound he got. Yeah. And and he he'd be looking completely away from the keyboard and just <laughs> not missing a note. I'm like, man, this guy's too much. So when did you first hear Garner? Do you remember? The first thing I heard by Earl Garner was Play Piano Play. Mm -hmm. And it was the solo version, not the version with the trio. And it just had this bounce that was just so infectious. It was very chord heavy, mm -hmm. very bluesy. All of that resonated with me because that's where I was coming from. Mm -hmm. 
at that time. And you were playing piano at the time as a young, c- coming up in school? In church. In church. Yes, in my father's church. He was a oh, Baptist okay. minister. Right, right, right. He was a storefront Baptist church in Philadelphia. And it was an old uh, console, upright piano, brown, beat up. And I used to kick a hole in the baseboard because we didn't have drums. Not that we couldn't have drums. We just couldn't afford a drummer. <laughs> but so to keep the beat, I used to, you know, mm-hmm. you know, kick it kick into the baseboard right. to keep the beat and one guy came to tune the piano he says who's who's doing this <laughs> you know i said okay son you can't do that anymore let's get him something he can stomp on the floor so we had linoleum floors this is an wow. old storefront linoleum floors so i used to stomp real hard on the floor my father was a quartet singer as well as a pastor as well as a full-time dad as well as a full-time husband as well as a full-time mm-hmm. job I mean, he had a lot of things going on there was so much music in these churches and these choirs were just phenomenal philadelphia is another great town for music um all different kinds of music much like pittsburgh and it was no thing for me to put records on and just listen my parents had to force me to go outside and play because i would sit with my little my little fisher price (laughs) record player (laughs) with my headphones on listening to ramsey lewis sounds of christmas all day long in the middle of july like eric Get out of here. Go outside. Okay, fine. I'll go outside and play a little while. Get all dirty, smell like outside. Come back in and put the records back on. Wow. You know, I saw the the outfits that Earth, Wind, and Fire that they were wearing, and I saw you know Michael Jackson. And they all looked like freaks to me. I mean, like like there was this pretend. I was a real Melvin as a kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> I was always reading books and hanging out with adults. So everything was very much reality for me. I was always a very serious kid. I spent a lot of time by myself with my records and my books. It's kind of like uh, Edgar Bergen at the end of the Twilight Zone episode where he was this librarian and these thick Coke bottle bifocals. Then the end of the world comes. That's one of my favorite episodes. Yeah, he didn't like people. And and then, of course, the end of the world comes. (laughs) finally, me in the books. Right. And then his glasses. glasses is like, no, it's, it's just not fair. There was, was so much time. You know, <laughs> that was kind of me, wow. unfortunately, for whatever. I was so deeply just ensconced in mm-hmm. listening to music. And I loved listening to music. And I loved going to the library. And they had a whole three or four bins of R&B and pop. And I'd be right here in the mm-hmm. jazz band. That's, that's just where I stayed. Right. I don't know why. That's just right. where I was. Right. Oklahoma medley. Yes. You know, the fact that he played those pieces from and Oklahoma. So smooth. So smooth. The transition. Was, I, I, I had to listen to it five times in a row, Robin, because mm-hmm. I, I was like, wait a minute. When, when did he get to people will say, when, wait, <laughs> start off as, uh, oh, okay. It, it was such a smooth transition. Right. And the exactly. way he would kind of transpose the time and he'd end one piece 
in one rhythm, and then that rhythm would become a different rhythm in the next song. I was like, oh man, that's so strange. Exactly. And that's just this open ears because the film came out in 55. Mm -hmm. This was 59. Yes. The musical had been on since Broadway the 40s. Since Broadway since the 40s. So it's like he's listening to everything, absorbing it, and making it his, his own. Yes. Oklahoma's not one that you often hear, but you know, it takes Errol Garner to <laughs> make it brilliant. Um, yeah. Oklahoma was Rodgers and Hammerstein. It was the first musical that Rodgers and Hammerstein did after, mm -hmm. you know, Richard Rogers uh, dissolved his partnership with Lawrence Hart. Oscar Hammerstein's music was was extremely light and, and positive. It looked forward and it was joyful. Mm -hmm. Richard Rogers, when he did his work with Oscar Hammerstein, Oklahoma, that whole musical, mm -hmm. there was a certain kind of synthesis that took place with the story, the acting, the dancing, and of course the songs finally came together in a way that had never been done before in a stage musical. And they completely changed the game. And then just hit after hit, The King and I, mm -hmm. Carousel. Richard Rodgers had found in Oscar Hammerstein the perfect writing partner. Somebody said Rodgers, when he wrote with Lawrence Hart, would write for two guys sitting in the Brown Derby talking about art. Mm -hmm. But Rodgers and Hammerstein, well, they just wrote for people. <laughs> they, just wrote for, they just wrote for everybody. And again, it's, it's the difference between making music for musicians and critics or making music for people. Right. And, and I think, again, or Errol Garner, circling back to Errol Garner, just this connection with people of, regardless of the song, making it palatable mm -hmm. in their own way. And it's like, well, I wouldn't have thought to do that like that. Again, and it would take Errol Garner to take something that seemed trite or kind of trivial and then put this into this song and, and treat it in such a way that it's like, I like that song now. Right. <laughs> Whereas before you didn't. <laughs> Amazing. We are being schooled by Dr. Eric Reed, scholar <laughs> of the American Songbook. <laughs> Um, it's amazing always. Oh, thank um, you so much. What a perfect way to close what was what has been uh, a sheer joy talking to you about this music, about your life and your relationship to it. Uh, so thank you so much, Eric. Thank you, Robin. It's been my pleasure. Always wonderful talking with you. Honor Uncovered is a production of Octave Music. Our show is produced by Alex Arif and myself, Pete Lockhart. Our executive producer is Susan Rosenberg. 
This episode's conversation was recorded at In-Flight Studios in Los Angeles. Shout out to Zephan and Josh. You can find the newly remastered edition of Dream Street anywhere you listen to music and get more info on the whole series at errolgarner.com. Special thanks to our friends at Mac Avenue Music Group and Downtown Music Publishing, and be sure to hit subscribe so our next episode pops into your feed. It features Chick Corea discussing Garner's album, Close Up and Swing. <laughs>